The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. Dennis Johnson. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Let's pray together. Father, you have heard our prayer to your beloved Son, the Rock of Ages, cleft, struck, opened for us to cleanse us of sin and guilt and to provide for us the nourishing water of your Holy Spirit. Father, thank you for Jesus. Open our eyes to see his glory, the glory of his cross, in these few moments of meditation on your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are celebrating this Reformation 500 months now, not just semester, but month. We're into the month uh, by meditating on Galatians, uh, Martin Luther's second wife after Katie Von Bora, uh, his, his beloved, his betrothed. And uh, we have seen so far in our meditations some of the symptoms of spiritual dehydration that Paul could see in the Galatian Christians as they were beginning to look back on their own efforts under the influence of the Judaizers, that they were thirsty for grace and didn't even know it, that they had the symptoms of pride and fear of what others thought of them and resulting into hypocrisy and competitive conflict and joyless slavery. And then last time we were in Galatians, we saw that Paul talked about himself being unmasked by grace, that the cross displayed what he himself deserved in terms of the wrath of God, uh, that it exposed the fact that he was not as righteous as he and other people thought he was, and the cross was great good news, even as it did that humbling task of unmasking him. And now we get really to the heart of Galatians today, in chapters 3 and a little bit of 4. I'm going to read a fairly long section, and we're going to meditate just on four themes uh, of how God embraces us in his grace through the gospel. So we're going to begin at uh, Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. I'll read through verse 14, uh, then hop to a little later in the chapter and on into chapter 4. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you Do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. 
For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, to verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts, even in these few moments of meditation. So Paul boasts in the cross. That's what he says in chapter 6. Shocking. Because uh, the cross was not mentioned in polite Roman society. But Paul says, that's the only thing I want to talk about, is the cross. That's the thing that gives me hope. As he said, just toward the end of chapter 2, just before he gets into the text we just heard, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The cross defines my identity because it assures me that the Son of God has loved me and given himself for me. And with that testimony, you can hear Paul's shock at the beginning of our text to his Galatian, his dear, his dear Galatian children. He will talk about them as children in chapter 4 and how frustrated he is with them. He says, did somebody cast a spell over you? In my preaching, in that first verse, he's talking about Christ being publicly portrayed, and it's almost a visual term of a poster, but you can see in the next verse, it's about his preaching. In my preaching, Christ crucified was presented to you, and now you think that you're going to reach perfection, you're going to finish the course by turning away from your resting and trusting in Jesus' blood and righteousness and looking back to your own efforts. How could you be so foolish? Who's cast the spell? over you. 
He appeals to their experience. When the Holy Spirit began to work among you and bring you to faith, was it because you were good law keepers? No. You heard the message about Jesus and you believed it. And the Spirit displayed his presence because he brought you to that faith and then he displayed his presence in giving you joy. And then, of course, he clinches the argument, not with their experience or even with his experience, but with Scripture, right? And so he just very quietly moves into that beautiful text that he loves so much in, from Galatians, from Genesis, excuse me, from Genesis. Uh, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And then from there he moves to another text that he loves from Habakkuk. The just, the righteous by faith will live. He can render that by faith in a couple different ways. And Paul does play with it a little bit. It's those who are right by faith who really live. And those who are right live by faith. And the scripture, he says, shows us that God has embraced us by trusting in Jesus. As the reformers would say, that we are justified, declared right, not only forgiven, but declared right in God's sight by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, on the strength of his perfect, obedient life, start to finish, inside and out, and on the strength of his sacrificial death. But in these chapters, Paul doesn't just confine himself to justification, as wonderful as that is, as foundational as that is. He really talks about how justification leads naturally into this great privilege of adoption, and adoption leads naturally into our amazing privilege of having the Spirit of the Son of God dwelling in us, teaching us to call God Abba, Father. Four gifts. Six minutes. That's highly unlikely that we're going to finish this. But I want to show you all four. The two sides of justification, two sides of one coin. Forgiveness and blessing, God's approval. And then what flow from it, adoption and the presence of the Spirit of the Son. So very quickly, very, very quickly. Okay, first of all, forgiveness. Christ's death under the curse brings us forgiveness removes the Father's frown of disapproval and judgment and wrath, frees us from the condemnation we deserve. This is really what we see in chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. Paul argues that if you rely on your record of law-keeping, you are under a curse. And that's the exact opposite of what the Judaizers or anybody who wants to teach you to get reassurance for your own uneasy conscience by looking at your performance, that's the opposite of what they would have argued. That's the opposite of what Paul would have argued before Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus. He would have said, anyone who is conscientious about keeping the law is under God's blessing. That's what he would have said. Paul now sees something better because he's reading his Bible carefully. And he's reading here in Deuteronomy 27, 26, which is what he's quoting in chapter 3, verse 10b. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the law to do them. Passing score in this course is 100%. One flaw, one failure, and you flunk. 
Now, if any of us profs tried that in a syllabus, there would be an outrage and you'd all be in Dr. Fesco's office talking about how unreasonable we are. But remember, we're not here talking about making sure you get the dates in church history exactly right or that you parse every Hebrew and Greek verb form in exactly the right way. This is about allegiance to the Lord of the universe. And if there were only one flaw in us, in that allegiance, of course there are many, 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 but if there were one flaw, it's like committing adultery against our divine husband. Can you imagine a husband or wife who would give a pretty good grade for staying faithful 94% of the time? Just one night of adultery per month. That's not so bad. 94% is a pretty good score, right? No. It's treason. It's treason. Because every sin, every violation of the law, is at that moment an expression of rebellion against our true and living king, and really an expression of affection for one of his rivals. It's at that moment that we say, someone, something, someone else can satisfy the hunger of my heart better than the true and living God can. It's always treason. So Paul argues, if your your record is less than 100%, you are under, under a curse. But, but Christ Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law. He became a curse for us. And you can see it because in fulfillment of Deuteronomy 21, He was hanged on a tree, a sign of rejection by God and humanity. He was hanged on a tree. He underwent the curse that he didn't deserve because he actually had the 100% score of utter loyal obedience to the Father, heartfelt obedience inside and out, birth through his sacrificial death. He didn't deserve it, but you did and I did. And he went under that curse for us. Forgiveness, forgiveness. Amazing grace. But there's more. Number two, the other side of justification is being credited with Christ's righteousness. Now, this is not the most explicit text where Paul talks about that. To that, we would go perhaps over to 2 Corinthians, where Paul talks about how God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Or we might go to Philippians 3, where Paul talks about wanting to be found in Christ, not with his own righteousness performed by his own law-keeping, but the righteousness that comes from God that is by faith in Christ. Those are the explicit points. But it's here. It's here in the transition from 13 to 14. Christ underwent the curse redeeming us from the curse that the blessing promised to Abraham would come to the Gentiles. The opposite of curse is not no curse. The opposite of judgment is not, oh, well, you're not guilty. The opposite is blessing. That's covenant terms. The options in covenant are either you obey and receive blessing or you disobey and you receive cursing. And Paul is talking about blessing here. Blessing that comes to Abraham, even though Abraham doesn't deserve it. I mean, Abraham, as Paul says in Romans 4, Abraham believed in the God who justifies the ungodly. 
So when God declared Abraham righteous, he wasn't saying Abraham's a good guy. He was saying, Abraham rests in me and I'm giving him the status of a covenant keeper, perfect covenant keeper, even though he's not. And blessing will rest on him and pass through him, through his seed, through ultimately through Christ. Christ's obedient life, it's in the background here a bit, I admit it. But it's there, his obedient life, vindicated in his resurrection, brings us the Father's positive approval as well-pleasing in his sight. And that's good news. Forgiveness is wonderful, but justification is even more than that. When I was a kid, we, taught, we were taught, justify is a big, long word, so in Sunday school we were learned it means just as if I never sinned. That's half-truth, good half-truth. But it also means just as if I'd always obeyed from the heart, start to finish. I didn't, but Jesus did. And I'm robed with his righteousness. Look at the scene sometime. We don't have time to look at it in Zechariah chapter 3, when the polluted high priest Joshua has his polluted garments removed and clean garments put on. It's a picture of the gospel. Blessing. Blessing. And from that, adoption. So we move to the end of the chapter, just briefly. Christ, the well-pleasing Son, makes us into God's children and into God's heirs. And Paul is talking here about actually what Israel was like under the law um, as, a, as a child who was not yet fully mature, under guardians, under uh, taskmasters almost, as it were, under the paedagogos, which is far more than a tutor. It's the slave to keep the heir in line until the heir is old enough to be trusted with the estate. That's, that's the picture that's being used here. And Paul says, in effect, Israel was in a kind of slavery, even though they were the heirs, just like all the Gentiles were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. The Gentiles were enslaved to false gods. Israel was kept under the regulations of the law to whet their appetite for the day of adoption, the day when they would enter in. And then Paul says, of course, we get to enter in too. So he's taking the view from the law court and the judicial bench The judge has not only proclaimed us not guilty and actually positively righteous, but then the judge puts his arm around us and takes us home to the family table and seats us as his children. Now, I know it sounds not PC for him to say to women, you're sons, you know. And later on, chapter 4, Paul will talk, use the more inclusive term children, techna, okay? But here he wants to emphasize sons because he wants to say all of us those who were historically insiders, biologically descended from Abraham, and those who are historically outsiders, we pagans, we Gentiles, and all of us, men and women, are not just sons, but we are heirs, because inheritance is tied into sonship. Sisters, you are sons of God because you're united to Jesus the Son. The Father has adopted you. The Father, that's why I like embraced, because it, it, it takes us from the legal, which is important and crucial, and then it makes it even more personal. You are adopted as the children of God. So God has so loved you that his son underwent your curse. You're forgiven. He so loved you that God has credited to you his son's perfect record of righteous obedience. You're blessed. He doesn't just treat you as an obedient subject, 
but he welcomes and embraces you as a son. And then he does that now through the personal presence of his Holy Spirit. So in chapter, we're going to look at the work of the Spirit in one or two more of these devotionals this semester, but just just notice verses 4 through 7 here, where Paul talks very briefly about the work of God sending his Son to redeem us, to bring us adoption, and then, because you are sons, verses 6 and 7 of chapter 4, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Abba, all you biblical scholars know is Aramaic, right? Abba, not really daddy, uh, no matter how many times the preachers have said that. Maybe closer to dad, because it is an intimate term, but it's not just for little kids. It's, it's for an adult child speaking to their beloved and honored father as well. Uh, but only three times in the New Testament do we have this Aramaic term turned into Greek alphabet and put into the Greek New Testament. Twice from Paul's writings here and in Romans 8, where again Paul talks about the work of the Spirit, assuring us that we really are children of God, that we can call God Abba Father. The other time is in Mark chapter 14, where Mark gives us a bit of a window on the struggle of the beloved Son as the cross looms the next day. It's in Gethsemane. He's asked Peter and James and John to stay awake and pray, and they fall asleep. But Jesus prays, Abba, Father, if possible, could this cup pass from me without my drinking it? But not what I will, but what you will. Abba, Father, Son, speaks to the Father. Could not this cup of your wrath bypass my lips. But of course, if it did, none of us could call God Abba Father ever, could we? None of us could. Only because the beloved Son who has the right to call God Abba Father underwent the curse as an enemy. Can we be brought into the family and filled with the Spirit of the Son who teaches us to cry out Abba Father. Now the Spirit changes us too, and we're going to look at that in a, in a future meditation this semester. The Spirit is at work bearing his fruit in our lives, and we do need to change. But first, first we need to rest in the assurance of the embrace of the Father secured to us by the work of the Son and applied to us by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Rest our restless hearts in Jesus. Resist sometimes the impulse to do something to make up for our failures. Now, we do need to change. We do need to repent. But don't do something in the thought that what you do may contribute a little bit to your case before the Father. No, the case rests on Jesus. My favorite English poet and pastor, George Herbert, wrote one collection of poems which almost went into the fire, except his friend had better sense than to throw them in the fireplaces. As Herbert was dying, he asked his friend to think about them, read them, and maybe see if they were worth publishing. I'm glad the friend had some sense. The last poem is the third one called Love. And in this poem, love, just hear it, love is Jesus, right? It's the name for Jesus. And it's 
Herbert's, the poets, the pastor, the sinners, invited to a feast by love. And he knows he isn't worthy. So there's this argument back and forth. And I'm just going to close with that and then lead us in prayer. So love, love number three, often called in the collections. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, oh, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I've marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? Herbert's last objection. My dear, then I will serve. I'll stay, but I'll serve, right? You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. You're embraced by love. And Jesus says first, sit down. Feed on me. And then there's change that needs to happen, but not first. You've been embraced by the grace of God in the gospel, in the work of the Son. Let's pray together. Father, teach us to rest in the righteousness of Christ. Teach us to rejoice in what he's accomplished for us. Quiet and calm our uneasy consciences, not with our resolutions to do better, we do need to repent, we do need growth, but they cannot win your heart. Only Jesus can win your heart for us, and he has. So, Father, um, teach us to sit down and taste of the sweetness of your grace in Christ, to rejoice in forgiveness and in blessing and in adoption and in the Holy Spirit's presence, teaching us to call you Abba, Father. We pray in the name of your Son, who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen. Copyright 2017, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.